Thank you, worship team. I, I feel like I should just get up here and say amen because those songs were a whole message in and of themselves. Uh, that was tremendous. And uh, we're going to continue to reflect on some pretty amazing things here. Uh, we're going to continue our study uh, through the Galatians, this wonderful letter to a small church the Apostle Paul wrote. And you'll find it uh, fairly close uh, to the beginning of the New Testament. A few books in, and so we're going to be looking at verses 11 through 21 of Galatians chapter 2. Follow along as I read these verses, and then we'll pray and ask God to teach us. Verse 11, But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof fearing the party of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, in the presence of them all, if you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? We are Jews by nature, and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ, not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. But if while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Let's pray. Lord, as we have entered into your presence this morning. We recognize right now, right here, it's a holy moment. And I believe you want to speak to us individually and corporately. And I pray this morning, God, each heart here would be receptive soil. That as you speak, your truth would find rich soil to receive your words. We not just hear them, embrace them and apply them and experience the life of your word. Lord, we confess that we are tired of living a Monday through Friday existence. Ignoring and so unaware of what your spirit is trying to do. Weighed down by duties and responsibilities and plans and goals. We confess we have not been sensitive to what you have for us. And yet this morning, God, I believe you want to speak to us and help us to hear that our lives are more than just the weekend. But Lord, you want to work in us and through us every moment of every day. So Lord, as we discuss these verses, I pray that we would hear what your Spirit has and that we no longer be the same. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now, as I read these verses over and over, there was a part of me that said, if I'm sitting out in the congregation on Sunday morning and I read those, some are going to be saying, what the stink does that have to do with me? 
Uh, this sounds like it's so much just a, a situation in Paul's day has no bearing on me, and I realize there's that temptation. And uh, so, but we're going to see there's a lot that this has for you and me. Uh, we have up to this point discussed some important things about this letter. In Galatians 1, Paul kind of talked a lot about why he's writing this letter. There had been some who came in to this young church and began to teach them that grace wasn't enough. They had to do some certain things. So it was Jesus works plus. And Paul was aghast by that, that they were falling for that. And so that's one of the main purpose of his writing this letter. In Galatians 2, 1 through 10, we see that right behavior, but with a wrong belief. And uh, in these verses, we see a right belief with a wrong behavior, as Peter kind of is addressed in this situation. And so we want to learn this morning in this passage what it means to live in line with the gospel. What does it mean to live Monday to Friday, Monday to Saturday, not just Sunday, living a life that's in line with the gospel we say we believe and the gospel we say we proclaim? Now understand, first of all, again, Paul is writing this letter to young believers, to a church. He's writing to Christians. That's an important context. If you name the name of Jesus Christ, if you've placed your faith in Him as your Lord and Savior, then this is written to you, too. If you haven't yet placed your faith in Jesus Christ, please pay attention because there's listed in these verses the significance of what happens when you do. And we'll talk about that in a minute. To live in line with the gospel, the first couple things we learn here is we must avoid hypocrisy. Remember, Paul's been defending his message in ministry. And this account of Paul confronting Peter would show that his God-given authority to confront a pillar of the church. So there's, there's another reason Paul account, recounts this situation. So he wants his hearers to know, I have authority given to me by Christ, so much so that one of the pillars you consider, I had to confront. Now we think of Peter, we see him in Acts 2 preaching, and thousands being saved. But then we see a low point in Peter's life. He's had a couple. And, and I feel bad for Peter sometimes. How would you like all your low points in written form for generations to see? And it's, there's Peter, poor guy. And, uh, and here he is. And this is not a, a high point of his life, for sure. Uh, you see, a preservation of the Gospels of critical importance. There's a lot at stake. And so Paul had to confront it, even if it was Peter. And one of the principles here, which we won't expound on much at this point, but later in the book, is sometimes it's necessary to confront a brother and sister. Because sometimes there's a lot at stake. Well, what occurred here? What, what's the deal? Why does Paul have to confront Peter? Well, first to understand the magnitude of Peter's lapse, I want you to look back this week at Acts 10. And to sum it up really quick, Peter had to face the fact that his Jewish law-trenched tradition was keeping him from being a fisher of men that God had intended. God gave Peter a vision in Acts 10. His message to Peter was clear. Salvation in Jesus Christ as much was for the Gentiles as it was for the Jewish people who considered themselves God's chosen people, and rightfully so. His, God's message was for all men. And Peter had to come to grips with this. These new believers were now in Christ. They were co-recipients of the grace of God. And as new creatures in Christ, Jew and Gentile, they were now part of the same family. And this vision God gave Peter was all about that. 
Gentiles are included in this. It's not just for Jewish people. This was a totally new perspective. It was a turning point in the church. Jews would not only eat with Gentiles or even enter their homes, they could now embrace them as brothers and sisters. I remember my senior year of high school, I went to a small high school in um, southwest Wisconsin, and, and we had a, a rival. You know what it is to have a rival, kind of like I imagine D.C. and Litchfield. You, know, you get those rivals. It's, just, it's not just another opponent. It's a little, little bit more to than just an opponent. They're a little, little more of a, an opponent. Rival, you kind of get a little more geared up. And uh, this was that such opponent. And um, being an antagonist back then, um, I, I knew that my opponent was having a dance. I'm like, I'm going to their dance. This is going to be great. And so, so I did. I went to their dance. Now, now, the other athletes knew who I was, and so that, that didn't go over so well. Um, but we got talking a little bit. And, uh, but I didn't just go to their dance. I danced with one of theirs. Danced with my opponent. Was the sister of one of the guys on the basketball team. He didn't like that either. And, and, and so you had these opponents together in the same place, in the same, same room, and and then I danced with one of them. And, and, and that's kind of this whole picture of Jew and Gentile. They're not only brought to the same dance. God says, I'm bringing you to the same family that now you're dancing together. That's what He did. They were now a family. And all the barriers were broken down. There weren't this team against that team or this opponent. They are now one family and one dance and they were dancing together. Paul needed to remind Peter of that. Because Peter began to subtly fall into something. We read in verse 12, there's a, there's a couple words you might miss. There's this coming of certain men. These are representatives from the Jerusalem church. And they weren't appointed by the apostles there. They were self-appointed. Basically they said, we have authority because, well, I don't know, we say so. And so they came to Peter without the authority of James. And rather than celebrating Christ's grace... They held that the Gentiles must be circumcised to be saved. That was a Jewish act, long history, which was significant to them and had a really uh, rich um, heritage of their faith in God. And so that's something you read a lot about in the Old Testament as well. But the teaching was that these Gentiles must be circumcised to be saved and that they were still unclean and should not eat with Jews. That's what this, these certain men came to Peter. Now, Peter, of all people, which is, which is odd to think about, he's intimidated. He's intimidated by their forcefulness. You ever run into someone who's just kind of forceful in, in what they, they teach and, and kind of push it on you? And that's kind of how these guys were. And Peter gradually withdrew from the Gentiles. It says, verse 13, even Barnabas was carried away. And so there's this pressure to make sure that these Gentiles include in their faith circumcision kind of got a hold of Peter too. And Peter's actions were serious. He was sending mixed messages to the Gentiles. This young church was receiving mixed messages. Peter was blurring the message of the gospel and obscuring the freedom it provided. As I looked at Peter's situation, I find really threefold failure. Now, before we let's leave them in Peter, they're also our failures. And so look at yourself here. First of all, he was hypocritical. He said one thing, but lived out another. We can't relate to that, can we? It's because sometimes we do the same thing. We'll tell our kids, don't do that, and we'll do it. Or we'll proclaim one thing and 
our coworkers see another, or our classmates see another. You see, we struggle with that too. Peter was being hypocritical. He also followed the crowd, these certain men, because they put pressure on him, even when he knew better. We call it peer pressure. Of course, we never face that, right, high school teenagers? <laughs> peer pressure. Pressure to do something we know is wrong because there's certain men or certain students who come and put pressure. You can relate to that. So now you're starting to see that this verses do have something to do with us, don't they? And then the third thing Peter did, which was wrong, he esteemed some people as better than others. He kind of was beginning to fall into this two-tiered Christianity. There were Jewish believers, and then there was a lower tier of Gentiles who also needed something else they didn't have yet. And how dangerous is that? We can make a, a certain tier to Christianity as well if we're not careful. And so Peter's failure was threefold. And then we read about Paul's rebuke. I find it interesting he does it publicly, but really if you think about it, since Peter's infraction was public, Paul's rebuke is public. I also like the fact he did it to his Peter's face. Paul didn't go behind Peter's back and go to another group of people and say, hey, guess what Peter did? You know, he, he's a jerk. You know, he didn't go behind his back. He went right to Peter publicly and said, here's what you're doing, Peter, and it's wrong. That's kind of the way it should be done in certain situations. Peter, you certainly haven't been acting like a Jew, is kind of what he's saying. You've been eating ham sandwiches with the Gentiles, and now suddenly you expect Gentiles to live like Jews. Peter, you're being a hypocrite. You're blurring the gospel. How did Peter respond? The text doesn't clearly say, but if we put together other passages, especially in the book of Acts, it seems he responded well. This happened before Acts 15. In Acts 15, we see Peter speaking really clearly about the Gentiles being part of the family because of faith in Christ alone, not plus circumcision. So it seems Peter got the message. And we, like Peter, tempted to succumb to peer pressure. and We're tempted to lapse into behavior that contradicts our beliefs. But that doesn't be, have to be the end of our ministry. It doesn't have to be the end because God uses a loving rebuke on Peter to kind of launch him into a greater ministry and he can do the same thing in our life. There's a couple of things that stood out to me about this hypocrisy. And one is this. Our words have consequences beyond ourselves. We're part of a family. And how we live affects others in the family. You may, not, you may think your life is just unto your own, but you know how you act and how you live reflects others you call brothers and sisters in Christ. So we're part of a family, and maybe one of the obligations we have is to each other. To not only strive to live out the Christ-like life, but to help each other live it out. So when we do go a different behavior, that others in the family say, come here, I'm pretty sure it's not what you want to do. And lovingly bring them back into line up with the gospel. It also occurs to me that a person who talks about grace, believes, lives legalistically or carelessly, is a hindrance to the gospel. Kind of neat this week, I ran into someone in the community, and and, and, and I actually remembered their name, which is half the battle in my case right now. And, and they said, Matt, it was interesting. I heard from somebody from Elam about that you were speaking a message about grace and legalism. And so we, it was interesting. Way to go, whoever you were. Um, and uh, you shared with them. And so we got talking a little bit about that. That's kind of cool. And so you're out there talking about uh, God's word and the way to go. And uh, it was about this point, about the significance 
of understanding the gospel is about grace. And to live differently and to proclaim differently, you become a hindrance to the gospel. And really, if you think about it, the gospel must be lived out, not just taught. It starts with ourselves applying those truths to our lives if we're to prevent living hypocritical lives. Living in line with the gospel, we must avoid hypocrisy, but also living in line with the gospel also means one's justified by faith alone. Paul used, used so often to speak in the results of salvation and talk about salvation, he uses this word justified. It's an important word. The Bible is so rich, it, it, and, and salvation is so rich, that the Bible uses four images primarily to discuss salvation. The first image is that of the home. The Bible uses a word that relates to home, family, and that's reconciliation. That because of Jesus Christ, we've been reconciled to God, where now we call Him Abba, Father. It's a beautiful picture, reconciliation. But it's not the only image. There's another image called redemption. And that, that uh, particular image doesn't take us to the home as much as it takes us to the marketplace where we've been purchased because we are in slavery. Oh, that's not all. Salvation also takes us to the altar, into the, ta- into the sanctuary, where we're told that uh, Christ became for us a propitiation. He was the atoning sacrifice, not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. It's this picture of Christ being on the altar, appeasing the wrath of God. But there's a fourth image. It's not reconciliation. It's not the image of redemption or propitiation. It's the image of justification. This image takes us into the courtroom. It's an important, beautiful picture of what Christ did for us. And Paul reminds again that you won't be saved through the law, but through faith in Christ. Look at verse 15 and 16. He's very clear on it, especially verse 16. He repeats the words faith, and he repeats the words justified. Those two words are pretty good. (laughs) They really sum it all up. Matter of fact, he used justified four times in two verses to drive home a point that justification is indispensable in how we think in terms of the gospel. So what does justification mean? It's a long word. This definition is not scripture, but I think it's a systematic uh, summary of what the especially New Testament teaches, but all the Bible. Define it this way. Justification is the gracious act of God by which God declares a sinner righteous solely through faith in Christ. You could also define it something along the lines of the judicial act of God, whereby He declares righteous the believing sinner at the moment of salvation. Both of those hit at really the heart of what justification is. Now let's break down that definition maybe to understand it a little better. Justification first, it's the gracious act of God. And at the end of verse 16, Paul alludes to that. If you look at the end there. And not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. It's not the works of the flesh. It's the gracious act of God. Psalm 143, 1-2, the psalmist really kind of hit on it in his prayer. He says, Lord, hear my prayer. In your faithfulness, listen to my plea. And in your righteousness, answer me. Do not bring your servant into judgment. Why? The psalmist hits it. For no one alive is righteous in your sight. No one. That would include you and me. No one is righteous in his sight. And the psalmist really is at the end of himself. As he knows, no one is righteous before God. Nor is there anything he can do 
to make him right with God. That's the dilemma. You and I need to come to the place in our life where we understand nothing in us warrants, merits, initiates, or even causes God to save us. Justification is all about grace. Justification is a gracious act of God. But as we continue on that definition, we learn something else about justification. Justification is the gracious act of God which God declares. And it takes us into the courtroom where the judge has the gavel and hits the particular little pad there and it makes the sound. And what he's saying is, I'm declaring innocence or I'm declaring guilt. It wouldn't matter if the juror hit it. It wouldn't matter even if the lawyers hit the table with a gavel. It only matters if one person hits in that courtroom. That's the judge. If he declares the person innocent or guilty, his authority carries that out. And certainly it's true in the councils in the courtroom of heaven. Because justification is a declaration. It's the word picture of a judge declaring his judgment. And justification indicates a legal declaration by God that he declares the believer righteous. That's quite a declaration. Really, if you think about condemning someone, to condemn someone is to declare declare them guilty. But the opposite of condemnation is justification. It's in this context, it means to declare someone not guilty. Now, if you go to Romans 8, 33-34, Paul hits on this a little bit. This is exciting truth here. Romans 8, verse 33 through 34. After talking about the fact that Christ gave his, Himself up, He delivered us, He says this, asks the question, Paul, is who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is He who died, yes, rather was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. If you're like me and you want to really apply Scripture, at the end of verse 34, put parentheses, for me. Isn't it kind of humbling to know that Christ intercedes for you? That's pretty cool. But what Paul's saying right here is, there's such a declaration of guilt, whatever charge could be brought before God, for the, for the believer, cannot stand in the face of God's declaration. So while you and every other might come before and try to come before God or declare that you're guilty, there's no way you could be saved. If you're in Christ, God is the judge and He declares you righteous. He declares you justified. And this is important because justification is not... A, in necessarily like a process or anything like that. This is a one-time declaration. You are justified. You don't have to live your life in fear. You don't have to live your life in uncertainty. You don't have to live your life looking over your shoulder saying, if I sin again, then I'm not saved. You've been declared righteous. You've been justified by Christ. That's why we can read in Romans 5.1 where Paul says, therefore having been justified by faith, We now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. God the judge has made a declaration in justification, and that declaration involves a sinner. The sinner's guilty. He's a guilty man standing before God. And this is a crucial point because one of the questions would be, okay, that sounds cool, justification. That's kind of a neat thing, but why is it even necessary? 
This is important. There's two significant reasons. Justification is necessary because of the sin and alienation of man. I think this might be the hardest thing for us to confess, that we've rebelled against God. We've taken His life into our hands, and we live as we desire. We fulfill the lust of our eyes and the lust of our flesh. We cling to the pride of life and to the things of the world. We become sinful, ungodly, and enemy of God. Pushed God aside, begun to live with ourselves at the center of our lives. We've separated and alienated ourselves from God. We need to be justified. There's another reason we need to be justified, and it has to do with our judge. Because God is the judge, there's anger and a holy wrath towards sin. Psalm 711 said, God is angry at the wicked every day. God hates sin. In His holy wrath, sin has aroused it. God's angry over man's rebellion, over man's hostility, over his ungodliness, over his unrighteousness, over his sin, over his desertion. God's grieved because man's turned his back upon God and pushed him away, having little to do with man. God's heart grieves as he looks at those who push forth evolution as if God doesn't exist. God's grieved when he looks at you and me and we decide that we know better than him. So no matter where you are in the spectrum, God looks at sin and it grieves his heart. And he's a holy judge and what he does must satisfy that holiness. God can't curtail and make light of sin because it would contradict his character. So as a holy judge, he needed to do something. And he came down, Jesus Christ, his son, he sent him. And he became the judge who died on the cross so you and I could be justified. It's a beautiful picture we have. So as we put it all together in justification, God takes a sinner, a guilty sinner, and declares him righteous. The holy judge of the universe takes a sinner in his willful rebellion, deserving only of guilty verdict, and says, not guilty. It includes God's once-for-all forgiveness of sins and His unchangeable declaration that we are righteous in His sight. You and I are at peace with God. We're innocent. In Christ, that is. God's declared you a sinner righteous. That is, that's the gospel. It's a beautiful picture. You know, the reason we can really get pretty excited about what we sang about is because it's true. Those songs we sang were powerful. And they all talked about not being condemned anymore and the freedom we have in Christ and we can long for a king to come because we're justified. Now, you might say, whoa, man, that's... That's really incredible. That God, the Holy Judge, would do all that so that I could be declared righteous in His sight? Wow. How? I mean, how does that happen? I mean, how can I be justified? Well, Paul's making bending over backwards so you know how not to be justified. It's not by works. And it's the third part of the definition. It's solely through faith in Jesus Christ. Can't emphasize it enough. Paul certainly couldn't. God the judge takes the righteousness of Christ and he credits it to your account when you put your trust in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He who knew no sin became sin for us. What was the result of that? So we might become the righteousness of God. That's pretty cool. By his death, Christ has made a way for his righteousness to be credited to us. But this righteousness is only credited to those who put their faith in Christ alone. But keep in mind, however, 
that justification is not the same as sweeping sin under the rug and pretending it never existed. Not at all. God knows it existed. Sin always has a penalty, but in Christ that penalty has been paid. And the record of your sins was put on the cross, Colossians tells us. The cross of the Son of God. And that's why we are accepted before God through faith in Christ alone. That was the rallying cry of the whole Reformation. Now does this seem too good to be true? It did to Paul's opponents. (laughs) Because if you look at verse 17, But if while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. Paul's answering a misunderstanding that his opponents had. In their mind, they were thinking, listen, Paul, you have a doctrine of justification through faith in Christ. And Paul, what you're telling us is that ju- this justification is apart from the works of the law. It's, it's solely through faith in Christ. So what you're saying, Paul, is you're being careless. You're saying it doesn't matter what we do. All we need is faith in Christ. That's what you're telling us, Paul. Paul, that's dangerous. They would even say, Paul, that's heresy. But Paul addresses this argument. As his opponents say, hey, if God justifies bad people, Paul, what's the point of being good? Can't we just do as we please? And Paul's conclusion is, may it never be. God forbid. I.e., that's not at all what I'm saying. And may God set the record straight. It's kind of what Paul's saying. Paul's opponents thought people who disregard the law would be found sinners. And since Christ is the one who supplies grace, they're saying, doesn't this make Christ then a minister of sin? That's their argument. But Paul goes on to point out the fact, verse 18 through 21, if I rebuild what I've once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. In other words, it's by grace in this law which I once believed, which now I'm saying won't save me, if I'm preaching something other than that, I've become a contradiction. But Paul's saying that's not true at all. Paul's saying there's, there's something God has done and I need to share it. It's greater than the law. It's a work of God of grace. We are now as Christians alive to God. For through the law I died to the law that I might live to God. Paul's saying there's something greater here. The law no longer condemns to death those who are in Christ. We are instead... Alive to God. The only way to be alive to God, Paul says, is to be dead to the law because the law can't save you. But if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you're justified and made alive to God. And what a statement to be alive to God. The implication is that one time you were dead to the things of God. You had no spiritual receptivity. You were spiritually ignorant, you could say. And as a new creation now in Christ, Paul, like us, died to the law That is, he quit trying to please God by performance, by keeping the law. That wasn't the way he sought to please God. You see, to be alive to God means we've exchanged our damning pursuit of self-righteousness for a life-giving grace in Jesus Christ. Our motives are all different. We're a new people. We've received salvation by faith. We're also enabled to live out this new life by faith. But he goes on to talk about a powerful verse. It's your next step, by the way, to memorize verse 20. I've been crucified with Christ, he says. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives with me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me 
and delivered himself up for me. Paul says, I'm dead. And since I'm dead, I'm dead to those things, I'm dead to those dreams, I'm dead to those plans, I'm dead. The old Paul's dead. There's a new guy walking around now. It's a new Paul. And this Paul has Christ in him. That's who I am now. Not the same guy anymore. And you can say the same thing. You're no longer just Tom. You're, you're, you're Christ in Tom. That's who you are. You have a new identity. That's what Paul's saying. He's died to himself. We not only die to sin when we trust Christ, we also die to ourselves. I no, lo- I no longer live, Paul's saying. This is no easy believism. You and I just don't believe intellectually that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. No, when we place our faith in Christ, you die with Christ. Your heart of stone is crushed. Your pride shattered and your life is surrendered. You die to the old self. I've been crucified with Christ, Paul says. It's not the same me anymore. My life is no longer about me. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you are a different person. I can be honest, your life should look different. And if your life looks no different than it did, I would go back to that original question. Have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ? Because you're new. There should be some of that newness being carried out in your life. I think that's what Paul's getting at. With Christ living in me, he gives a new desire for holiness, new desire for heaven. And everything is different now because we ourselves are different. We often think of faith in Christ solely as I place my faith in Jesus Christ at the moment of salvation, as if that's no, we no longer live by faith. As if it was a one-time decision and it has no bearing on my Monday through Saturday. Maybe Sunday I'll hit it a little bit. But no, Paul goes on to say, look at the tense he says. Christ lives in me, the life which I what now live. It's this, it's this life right now I live. It wasn't just the moment where he encountered Jesus when he exercised faith. He lived a life of faith. And our lives should be marked by that regular, continual life of faith, day in and day out. In other words, we need to die each day. Die each day to our rights, our plans, because there's no victory in your plans, there's no victory in my plans. If you're running your own existence, there's no freedom there. And when you and I die to ourselves, we'll start living more fully than ever before. And like Paul, we died to our own identity. Our rights, our plans, our goals, our desires, our dreams are all subjected to Christ. So completely, it's as if you're dead. And might we be so immersed in sacrificial service to God in this new identity that it's clear Christ is living in us and Christ is alive in us. Well, let's put it together. Living in line with the gospel, we must apply it. Three things I think jump out and let's use each of these uh, to evaluate ourselves. First of all, the gospel must not only be taught but applied. When it's not applied, we become hypocritical. A person who talks about grace but lives either legalistically or carelessly is a hindrance to the gospel. And maybe you've heard of the axiom, what you do speaks so loudly I cannot hear what you say. That's especially true in the Christian life. The gospel must not only be taught but applied. Number two, the gospel declares we are justified and accepted by Christ. It's a reason to celebrate. It's a reason to marvel. It's a reason to sing. I find it amazing that in 1 Peter, I believe it is, 
So great is this picture of salvation that it says even the angels long to look into these things. In other words, it's so deep, it's so rich, it should cause us to marvel because even the angels are trying to figure it all out and say, whoa, that's amazing. Might we echo that? And when we sing about it, and certainly we're about to sing in Christ alone, we have reason to sing for sure. Don't succumb to the fear. Don't succumb to the anxiety of never knowing this reality. Put your faith in Christ. And you'll know what it is to be accepted and justified. And number three, the gospel shows us we are to live according to who we are in Christ. It's the gospel in this new life that advances us towards holiness. Don't live like the world because you're not of the world anymore. You're in Christ. You have a new identity. Live a life that matches your identity. Your life, my life, your message and my message should be Christ-centered. Why? Because you are in Christ. And He is in you. What's your life communicate? What's it centered around? Are you living true to your identity? If you're living so much for yourself, you're not living in congruency to your identity. Make Christ central because that's who you are. You're in Christ. Are you living in line with the Gospel? Does your life square with the good news? It's only two answers. No. And if not, the Bible has a word. Nothing short of repentance. It's turning away from that life and that sin and turning to Christ. If you are, you're saying, no, I look at my life right now and by God's grace, it's actually lining up. <laughs> um, then, then you need to keep dying to yourself day in and day out. That's where victory is found. And so might each of us find our lives lining up with this wonderful gospel that we read about in Galatians. Let's pray. Lord, as we look at these verses, I, I, it's been my prayer all week that we come out of this time challenged. Maybe a little clearer about what was really being spoken about here. And certainly clearer about what it means to our life. If we were really honest here, God, and we really want to be because you're here, we all, like Peter, have had times where we've been hypocritical. We've said one thing, but we've been doing another. We've told others gossip is wrong, but boy, we've turned around and let it rip. We've spoken to our kids about treating people fairly and then began to slander our neighbors. We've shared with others the importance of keeping our eyes pure and then went to the computer and did something totally opposite. We've got to confess we've been so hypocritical. And God, we repent this morning of that. I know I do. And I pray each here would do the same. Lord, we don't want to live that kind of life. We want to live a life of absolute authenticity before you, of pure. Lord, we also got to admit that we've made our life and our message way, way too much about us. Lord, we haven't really lived true to our identity. Because of that, we need to repent for that. Lord, bring each of us to the point where we acknowledge we have nothing to offer this world but You. Our dreams, our plans, our ideas, our purposes, 
They bring nothing. But it's your purposes. It's your dreams. It's your plans that, Lord, can impact our world. Help us to live true to who we are in you. Might you remain the central of all we say, all we do, and all we plan. But Lord, whether it be the way we look at ourselves or the way we live and walk each day, it would be really great, God, if you'd be pleased by it all. If you'd be glorified by it all. So please, Holy Spirit, do that work in us. Make us more holy. Make us more like you. Empower us to live in Christ. And to never forget where we go this week, whether it be Monday morning or Thursday afternoon, that you live in us. And help us to live, Lord, in a way which is pleasing to you and which is in keeping with who we are in you. For the praise of your name. In Jesus' name I do pray. Amen.